I'm Paddy Hanlon, production sound mixer with the CAS, and today I'm in conversation with Mr. Noel Quinn. became known on account of what I'd done. Oh, you! Known forever as the notorious Francie Brady. Francie Brady, the butcher boy. Now, in your opinion, could the murder uh, be drug-related? You can't believe everything you hear, Miss Kieran. In his career, Noel has covered many of the sound positions in our industry, winning him an Emmy nomination for the hijacking of the Achille Laro in 1989. Well known to be one of the best boom operators in the industry, along with being a long-time educator, I had the great pleasure of working with Noel in the past and I wanted to get an idea of how it all started and a few stories of his path. Thanks very much for talking to us today, Noel. You've had this long career which has taken you from Ireland to Australia, parts of Asia, Europe to the States and back to Ireland and then you've been an educator for half that time, maybe? Yeah, educator since 75. 75. As well. So so that's... That's actually when I was born. So you've, you're you teaching my life length. Yeah, you, that's hard to believe, isn't it, when you think? <laughs> From the start, like I suppose for all of us, did you have anybody you looked up to? Like, were you a big cinema goer? Like, was it a job as a child that you always wanted to do? Or was sound for you something that you slipped into, like many of us? I think sound was uh, an area I actually slipped into. Uh, I want, I was going to be and would have loved to have been a draftsman. I would have loved to have been an architect. And, uh, you know, it. it I, I got a summer job in a cinema when I was 16. And um, and I was lucky and it was in a major theatre. So we'd done stage shows as well. We'd done, you know, the um, 70 mil which was also interesting, rejected 70 mil. So that was a nice experience. Whereabouts was that? That was the Adelphi Cinema in in Dublin. Uh, you know, that to me was, uh, again, it was a summer job. I hated school. I wanted to get out and work. We were a group of us were taking girls out to see, I think it was the Monkey's Uncle or someone's name. <laughs> I think that we were going to take the girls out to see and they were waiting at the cinema. And one of them had a friend with her and... Um, I always thought I'd like to be a gentleman. I always wanted to pay for the girl if it was my girlfriend, you know, even at those at that age, you know. And um, when I saw the two of them, I hadn't got enough money to pay for both. So I said to the lads, listen, just say I'm sick. And I decided I'd go out and look for a job. <laughs> really? Uh, went into a renter's place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what happened. I went into a renter's place and um, I said, any chance of a job? And your man said, <laughs> we're closing down. And uh, there was a guy there at the time, young guy, and he said, oh, hang on, can you hang on? And I said, yeah. So I waited outside and he came out and he carrying a, these containers, steel containers. And I thought, what's that? He said, listen, he said, I work in the Adelphi Cinema and I'm leaving uh, this, the end of this Friday. He said, uh, if you're interested, I'll come around and meet the chief, as they call him, the head projectionist. So I did. And he said, uh, if you can get into the union, you can start on Monday. 
I went in that week and, you know, I threw in my papers and said, look, got into the union, done all of that. And he said, OK, you start on Monday then, but don't come in, it's your day off. <laughs> wow. Back then, was it a matter of just putting your papers in, applying? My dad was involved in the union. He was a, a fitter and turner by trade. He had lots of connections in the union anyhow, so, you know, and but not in that industry. Not that it mattered. It was just, I didn't even do a year there, close enough to a year. So then coming, you were 16, you got a job in the Adelphi, which actually the Adelphi was a big thing in my life because I'd seen Back to the Future, E.T., all, like, all the big early movies were, were, were there that I'd seen. I, I done a course on light and sound. I had to do that as a projectionist. That's something you've got to do, you know, so you learn about your optical soundtracks and, you know, lighting and what you should put in using the, uh, what do you call it, the arc lamps, basically, was what we used to use, you know, um, to throw light onto the screen. But um, the lecturer at the time said, oh, listen, uh, by the way, there's a job going out in Ardmore Studios you might be interested in. And I said, oh, gee, Ardmore, what's that? I didn't even know what it was. <laughs> and he said, it's a film studio. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. And he said, what age? I said, I'm 17. He said, you're too young. I said, well, do you mind if I go out anyhow? And I did. And... Um, I got out there. Uh, I met the head of the sound department, Tommy Corn, a really lovely man, a lot of respect, very, very talented. Uh, he was the head of the sound department there. And he uh, apologized for not being able to interview me right now. He said, I have to go to a meeting. And there was a John Houston's film being shot at the time, and he was going to a production meeting. So he said, but Paddy, who was a projectionist in Ardmore, will show you what you'll be using, which was a mechanical boom. Was this your first intro to like a boom or, you know, like, were you coming straight from proje from projection into into like day one? Here's a I here's basically, a I was straight from projectionist, went out there for a quick interview. Um, you know, I didn't know what I was doing when I was getting into it. All I knew I was going into it. I mean, it didn't, I, it didn't even excite me, I don't think. It just thought, here's another, you know, journey, if you like. And let's see where it leads and what yeah. happens. And then when he said, Paddy, you know, when I got out there and he opened up the Dublin Street and he said, that's the thing you'll be using, which is a mechanical boom. Paddy will show you how to use it while I'm at the meeting. That, you know, basically to stop me getting bored because he probably looked at me and thought, God, I better break. Sorry, there's not a few toys in there for that kid to play with. It's very young. Like, you're going from a projectionist at 16 into, into your first job in sound at 17. At, at 17, yeah. And it's, I, 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 listen, I didn't even get to the interview. I got up on the boom. Paddy was showing me how to use it. And when I, I mean, Pat, he must have been at the meeting for about an hour or so. But by the time he came back, I actually had polystyrene cups sitting around the dubbing suite. And I was trying to drop the mic into the cups <laughs> when he walked in. And he said, I'm not even going to talk to you. When can you start? That was it. He said, the first thing you're going to do is uh, you're coming early. You're going up to Glencree, which is up the mountains, and you're going to get onto the John Houston film. You'll be working with the sound department. Uh, Basil Fenton Smith was the recordist. That was Basil Fenton Smith from the Yakuza, the man who would be king, the Count of Monte Cristo, stuff like that. Uh, there was four on a crew then. Oh, Luxury. God be with the days, yeah. You had, uh, you had your recordist, boom up. You had a recordist boom operator, sound camera operator. He or she was responsible for um, delivering power to the camera. 
So we had a, a quiet, what they call it, uh, either an inverter, if it was a single phase, if it was three phase, we had a rotary converter, which was a generator. And it could generate three phase, so 110 volts per line, which was fed to a Mitchell camera, for those that would remember. And also we had a cycle counter. So we were looking at the counter coming up to 50 cycles. And that's where the speed came from in the first place, because when the generators come up to speed, the sound camera operator would shout, speed. So then, so then it's not camera. It, it, it's, it's in relation to the sound recording machine, it, what they call it, the sound camera. It, well, because we had it in the back, we needed to take a pulse from that generator which we did, we'd take that yeah. 50 cycles and record it. Initially, we used a half of 35, 17 and a half, um, I think it was 17.5, uh, Basil was using to record on magnetic tape. And one track had a pulse on it, which we got from that generator. Right. The 50 cycles. Um, so that, that was an experience. And uh, then we had the maintenance man. So he, he, the maintenance-wise, I, I, because they'd be making up gadgets if, if everything was working all right. So, you know, they'd be, which was fantastic from the sound point of view, because you'd say, oh, we need something, you know, you might want something. He'd build it for you, because they were just magic. Yeah. It was great. Uh, so that was a, a, an experience. And I think I spent probably about a month or more on the shoot with them. And I just really had a nice time. I learned how to use a boom more. I was learning scenes. I was learning what was happening. It's a much slower pace. There was no, uh, yeah. as you can say, there was no uh, videos. <laughs> assist. The closest I got to the Mitchell had a, uh, a viewfinder to one side. Um, so what would happen is that when you're lined up, you, the whole body would slip out of the, the um, soundproofing. <laughs> so you could line it up with an eyepiece, right? Then you'd put it back into its, its sound muffler, basically, closed the door, and then you had a parallax uh, viewer on the side, which, which uh, just looked like a little tiny viewer. And if you, if you could get yourself in behind that, you could actually see the shot. But that wasn't going to help you too much. You had to learn the lenses. You'd have an idea of where you, where you were. Yeah. So then when you talk about sound muffler or like sound insulation in some way was that a box at that point or was that more like a a blimp it was a blimp it was an actually it wasn't a blimp it was actually made for that camera that's because i mean they were so you know very very conscious i mean the mitchell was you know is the spin-off of the mitchell was the panavision uh, panavision camera was the spin-off from the right, mitchell right the aries were the ones that we really needed to uh, put a blimp over and they came with a leather blimp or we brought our own plus the blankets. The biggest problem too was that a lot of sound came through the lens, the front. So we'd have a clear up the yeah, glass on the exactly. front uh, to try and stop the sound coming through. Was, was that something that attached to the camera, that clear optical glass? Like, was that like a lens cover, essentially? No, no. It was actually, um, we, we'd actually have a filter holder. So, um, because as... Needless to say, as time progressed, uh, you would be like those certain camera people would ask, would, would you mind if they used the Ari rather than the, the Panavision? And uh, you'd say, yeah, on condition you give us the optical, clear optical and put it in front and the blimps. And they, they'd have to sacrifice that because you'd nail them for it because they asked you. That's <laughs> this is back in a time where people had to consider the sound department. The sound department oh. kind of led everybody by the hand a little bit still. Well, I mean, this is my 
version of Basil Fenton. Basil would arrive with his headphones, headphone case, right? Mm. So, I, of course, I was a, basically a trainee, so it'd be handed to me, you know. <laughs> it was like handing you a bar of gold, you know, and you'd bring it and put it in the van because we had our own audio van, you know what I mean, with a desk in it with the Niagara. Yeah. It wasn't Niagara, it was a 70.5 machine on it, plus we had the rotary converters in the back of the van, you know. So, um, And they were all, as I said, silent as could be. They were amazing. He would go and meet up with John Houston and the camera person, I think it was Terry, I can't even remember now. And they'd all, and you know, all the heads of the department would sort of meet and they'd have a chat and say, what do you think? Yes, looks a bit cloudy. Do you think we should wait? Maybe let's have tea. (laughs) So, you know, you'd have tea while you're waiting because it's a bit cloudy or something like that. And then wait till it clears and... You know, then you'd go and shoot so or rehearse, whichever the case was. But it was it was a lot more civilized because we had a problem. Will we just go again? Mm. Let's let's not discuss it. Just do it again, unless. Um, yeah, I, I realized early on that um, if you had a director that was interested in performance, he or she would always question: Do we have to do? Do we, have we lost all lines, or is there only one line we're talking about that I could pull from another take? So I learned very quick yeah. how to use that information to your advantage because, you know, you can say, look, we've got it. Yeah. We've just one line we've lost if you want to pull it. But it'd be nice if we could go again, though. I'd love another hit, especially if it's noisy. That's, I, I loved it for a number of reasons because in, in that era, I learned a lot because you were taught how to, what lenses were. The size of the lens, you had to work it out because, you know, you couldn't keep asking an operator, am I? <laughs> You know, and, uh, you know, sometimes, especially with that viewfinder, you were slightly off with the parallax. So, so you know, you'd, you'd have to know your lenses. Lighting wise, uh, the lighting was uh, you had to be able to I learned lighting very, very quick because you've got to be able to talk the language. You've got to be able to ask for flags. And I was in there when they lit. I always insisted if I'm going to swing, I need to be in there when they light, because what's going to happen is. We get into a set and they start lighting it. If I'm in there when they're lighting, if they've moved out a fridge or a wardrobe or they get a light in behind it or whatever, while they're tweaking the light, I can say, can you give me something on the top there? Or a jail is catching a glint and just throwing it your way or something that's going to give me a shadow on that wall. So you're watching all of that um, as well as, you know, a direct shadow problem you're going to get. And then what happens is if you're not in the room when that happens... The mm. wardrobe's put back. Then you come in and go, oh, there's a shadow problem. Can we... We're not moving the wardrobe. Now it's a major feat to get anything Yeah, done. and you're not only making work for yourself, you're making work for other departments. Like, yeah. if you're in there with them, yeah. they'll appreciate that as well because, they like, everybody can just get it focused and it's done. Yeah, I think... Uh, when I look at today uh, and I think to myself, you know, I I really was very lucky. I had... I was very young when I started. Uh, I think the next person to me was 28. And I was the kid. I got away with murder. We were in a union area. You couldn't, you weren't even allowed to put your hand on anything, basically, or it was going to be a walkout if they didn't like you. Because I was the kid, even if somebody gave out to Ali Malone, he's the kid. Ah, okay, then go on. So I'd end up moving lights that were in my way. Because with a mechanical boom, we used to actually even move. The sets were all floatable. So you'd have to come in from one, the opposite side of the set from camera. Or, you know, you'd be looking from the opposite of the key because that's any boom swinger knows you've always got to go in the opposite to the key so the shadow goes the other way, you know. So um, you, sometimes you'd be moving walls and stuff like that. You'd have to. 
When you went out on location, there was no pole available at that time, was there, or was it all mechanical boom? No, there was. Uh, I've used wooden poles, which were like the old, you know, the clean the chimney bit, and uh, aluminium. Um, right, okay. I used, I think it was a, a, a Electrovoice a dynamic shotgun, uh, which was, I think, we used to call it the elephant's tusk. I don't know if anybody else, I think it was 614, was it, or 6 something four? When, when you put all the foam gags on it and stuff like that. Uh, and I broke two poles with that for Lent. <laughs> That's not, not wooden poles, it was actually aluminium poles. How did a wooden pole work? Was it extendable or was it just one length? No, you, no, you, you're putting in lengths and screwing them on. It wasn't, it wasn't telescopic. So it just made it a little bit more, you can imagine, difficult because sometimes you want that half pole, which you hadn't got. That's, so yeah, yeah. you just had a bit more of a stretch to do. I've never seen, I've never even seen any like, record of a wooden pole. Yeah, no, it's 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 bamboos were fantastic bamboo. I mean, most of your poles come from bamboos anyhow. The, 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 but you you just have to be inventive to make it. Like exactly, yeah. The other thing too is you've never had the opportunity of using a fisher boom or a molds boom, whichever. Because we also had a molds boom, which is like an old chariot. <laughs> you could. I don't know how many times I was nearly knocked off the platform because the back back weight you'd swing it, it was so heavy that it just nearly take you off. You <laughs> The other thing, too, is that the fissure was actually had a tremendous rumble in it as well. So we used to have a sandwich to try and stop the, the sound vibrating down to the mic. So we'd have a foam sandwich in between. So a rumble as in if you adjusted like the, 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 the wheels. Yeah, yeah. So if you're racking in and out. Right. It's, yeah. it's basically yeah. got two sets of, of three wheels like you'd see on a, uh, uh, you know, a, like a, a winch system. Yeah, you know the tracking dollies they use nowadays with the like the skating wheels on it. You know, it's got three. Yeah, just fits around that. Yeah. So it's three. It's it's three of those around two and one on the back and one on the front, and it's just been racked yeah. out and racked in. The spring, the the the, the panning the mic, uh, you couldn't do a complete three sixty, but close enough if you done it right. Um, but you, the spring was fine. The spring was really no problem to do your pans. It was the racking in and out you just had to be aware of. Because... Yeah, yeah. So you... you, you it, it wasn't a smart thing to get yourself into a position where you're doing a lot of racking. You'd be actually trying to find a position during the block through. Cause, and that's another learning exercise I think I got where I learned even with the fishbowl that I'd pick three positions I could work from. And that was partly to do with the boom itself that you wanted in the mechanical boom. You wanted it in an area that you do the least amount of movements. So it was a, it was a big decision after a block through. It was like like that... Your main decision is, right, are we going to use a mechanical boom or will I go with a pole, correct? Uh, yeah, most times, you'd, I mean, initially you would be looking at uh, Fisher boom on set and out on location, but location would be more right. the pole. Studio was definitely a, a, a Fisher boom, unless you had a tight area where you'd have a pole put in, you know what I mean? You'd be either up in the gantry or you'd be on the floor somewhere to one side with another, you know what I mean, if you had to put in a second mic. Now, as well as that, remember that... Um, we were using dynamic mics. We hadn't got condenser mics at that stage. Yeah, that's um, like first up when you said dynamic. I'm like, how are you, how are you doing that? <laughs> yeah, and the, 
you've seen the D25. The, it's like some people, there's a D20 for bass drums, but the D25 was suspended in rubbers. Uh, I've actually got one or two shots of me with that on the end of the pole, on an aluminium pole, right? With a French crew doing, I think it was Goodbye to the Hill or one of those. Yeah, quite interesting. I think it was a Panaflex camera as well, so uh, a, bit, a little bit different. I mentioned to you that the head of the sound department was Tommy Curran, uh, really good yeah. head of the sound department. The recordist that was there was called Liam Cernan, and that's who I worked with. And Liam was only short of going out there with a measuring stick and measuring how far the mic was away. And he'd say, can I have another take just to check this to see if this guy has it right? So he was quite technical, technical in where he wanted the mic to be? Oh, you, you you should be this distance away, and you were this distance away at oh. that there, uh, and the lens is only this, it was shorter to do that. But I was trained well, I, I can't complain about that. Now, I got a few clatters as well, <laughs> that's, that's, that was the day when they get away with that. It's definitely going to sharpen your tool set, isn't it, if someone's on you all, uh, like that all the time, you know? Yeah, Liam, uh, at one point, because we'd done quite a few films together, and I also had worked with English crews as well, because I was out, anything that came in, and I wasn't working, I was out on it. Um but uh, yeah, and, and these old eight oh fives was uh, had nine memory batteries, you know, like the hearing aid batteries. Yeah, and the connections were oh god, they were a nightmare when Sennheiser's came out. You know, the, the those eight ones, and it'd be clicks and bangs. Of course, initially I wasn't used to all that because I we didn't have headphones. You know, you were lucky for the recorders to have headphones. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> there was no way you were going to have a set. Um, so you got used to hand signals all the time. There were lots of hand signals. <laughs> I'd imagine you know so. I mean? If anybody was taking bets. This was pre any of the monitoring that we now know. Yeah, any, yeah. When I came back into studio, now I was going to be working in the studio as well. So I had the dubbing suite. I had transfers. I had uh, the back room when they were mixing. You know what I mean? So great. You know, and again, we were using 25 mil full coat, 25 mil stripe, learn all of that, how all the machines lock together, you know what I mean, with the projector. Uh, done looping, uh, spent my time in the dubbing suite during post-sync, done music uh, sessions uh, like um, uh, for commercials and stuff. Um, but Tommy, uh, when I came back uh, after being out, with, he said to me, OK, next thing you're going into editing and you're going to sit in editing for two weeks while you watch some of those scenes to be edited. So I spent two weeks in editing. I learned about um, cutting. I learned about a bit about track laying. Don't get me wrong. I, I didn't know everything. I still had a lot to go, but I learned. I was taught. Um, I went to every department in Ardmore. I went to tailoring, makeup, hair, construction, electrical, um, camera department, uh, grips department, you name it, a special effects department. He sent me to every one and I spent a week or two weeks, depending on what it was in each department. In Ardmore, were you there for a long time, like from the age of 17? Oh, yeah, I, I, think, I think it was 71, 70, 71 I left. I always, I don't know why, they went, I'd say 70 that I left, I'll tell you why. But I had, I worked on some great films. I worked on uh, Country Dance, Line and Winter, with Peter O'Toole, Catherine Hepburn, some really good directors, you know, over the, that time. And great experience, Underground, Mackenzie's Break, Brian Keats. There was, it, they came in to shoot um, Underground with Robert Goulet. And um, I was sort of dragged out, uh, we need somebody as a trainee, will you go out, or sound camera operator, basically. And I went out and done sound camera operator. Um, 
and I ended up doing second boom as well. Uh, then I ended up taking over the main boom. So I ended up doing quite a bit on the main boom for underground, quite a lot. Uh, then what happened is they came back to do McKenzie's break and the Levy brothers asked, could I come out and a focus puller that was out on underground from Ardmore at the time. And they said, we, you know, and they pushed to get us out, but we were doing a film at the time. So that wasn't possible. So as soon as I finished, I was out on the set. What, was that your first movie where you were like, right, I'm, I'm out as, as boom up? Uh, I think Goodbye to the Hill was the first major. I'd done others before that, but I was doing quite a lot of second booms. You were doing, you know what I mean? You were doing, plus never mind all the commercials, but uh, I think Goodbye to the Hill was the, was the first one for me. I don't know if it was 69, 68 or 69. Uh, I was let go out of Ardmore because it went into the hands of the receivership in 70. Ardmore was in and out of hands of receivership. What happened was that um, Tommy actually fought and said, well, this is ridiculous because the sound department was self-generating. It, it made a lot of money for Ardmore Studios. It was part of Ardmore, but it made a lot of money because we were always busy. We weren't doing jingles. We were post-sync and we were, you know, we were, I mean, all the effects for deliverance was actually done at Ardmore in the, in the dubbing suite. We built really? a tank in the dubbing suite, the aluminium wooden boats, all the effects, all the moves, all the dialogue, the, the post-sync. So, um, so great experience. You're working with all of, you know, these type of people. Okay, so let me hit you with the first playback. In the pit, the water rose round Una's ankles, creeping up about her knees. Oh, bother blast, she sobbed. I bet I'll drown. Suddenly, the sounds of something came crashing through the forest, nearer and nearer. Several somethings. Was this uh, Images, which yeah. is Annie York? Yeah. Written and directed by Robert Altman and a um, very sound-focused movie. Yeah, it has that, that because it was a very... It was quite an interesting shoot. It, it, I think I remember Liam and myself, but more so probably Liam than me. He was probably more concerned because Altman had just come off... Um, uh, mash. So was he playing the mash approach on this, or was it more standard? It was the standard. We 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 had heard about mash and panicked. He had we he actually viewed he get, screened McCabe and Mrs Miller for us when we were all there. You know what I mean? Uh, he had just finished that. I just remember it was an interesting film to work on because Altman was really interested to work on and very very good for sound. Yeah. Uh, so we got lots of opportunities and we got good opportunities to get good stuff and he liked good stuff and he wanted that. When I rewatched it, there was a lot of, there is a lot of attention to sound, even in the sound design. And then John Williams was the music composer on it. It was very, it was a soundy movie. Uh, you can see all the wind chimes. We had all the different sounds, but there was some lovely stuff even with Suzanne when we were doing the shots when she was walking around the house and you'd get a Dolly Creek and she'd immediately react to the Dolly Creek, right? And it's right. in the film, so it's nice to see some of those along the way. Yeah, It was really a pleasant film to work on. Uh, the only thing I made a mistake of was wearing red at one point and I'm up in the gantry and... I remember Robert uh, standing in the middle saying, what did I say about red? Of course, I'm totally oblivious. I'm putting the... We used to bring the mechanical boom up there as well. I was setting up the mechanical boom up on the, up on the rigging above us, above the set. And uh, 
Did I say anything about red? Did anybody hear me? <laughs> Maybe from the sound department. I went, oh, oh, sorry, is that me? I'm wearing red. <laughs> <laughs> he said, do you mind not? I'd prefer if you didn't. Really? And then when I came down, he just said, he went up to me and he just said, look, it just distracts the actors. So I just found him a really nice, very, very interesting, you know what I mean? Just, uh, we got tremendous opportunities, really. Right. I just think, and we were very lucky a lot of the time. I think there was a lot more teamwork all around. There was a lot more... It feels like that time to film, even when you look at it. Like, I suppose being experienced from a sound point of view, you do get the feeling where it was a tight crew and yeah. it has a feel of a, of a team. You know, again, everybody was so aware, you know, but, but that was the day where you weren't allowed to break a red light. Yeah. On the studio floor. It was instant dismissal if you brought, and that included, there was war even, but you, no one would break a red light. Yeah. You know, nowadays people just walk in and out. Like, oh, and you're just walking oh, yeah, around. Man, we not got a red up here? Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Like, you'd have people standing beside you, you just have full-blown conversations now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, all you're saying is you've got quite easy on the, up on the green yeah. and quiet on the red, uh, you know, when you're in. And the other thing, too, is getting the, the ADs to say, switch it off. When they say cut, switch the light off to let people in. That's what, why it breaks down. Yeah. If you if even sometimes I remember swinging and you'd be you could do with a with a better help somewhere even for a line you could always ask it wasn't yeah. a big deal you know you just as a boom swinger I mean I'd I'd go down and ask because I'd know where I want the line and just say any chance I could have a pause and you sometimes you get an interesting you want a pause he wants a pause what <laughs> you know as a joke and then yeah you can have a pause yeah. No problem. Still with like the lower budget kind of movies, you still have that, there is that kind of little bit of artistic freedom where you get cooperation from, from a few people. But then nowadays as well, when you go on to the bigger series or the, or the major movies, it's more like, you know, don't look at them or don't talk to them or, you know, it's... it's That's what I mean. It's, it, it, it's like, it, you know, it, it's, it's... It stunts the creativity a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose, you, you know, they always say, well, don't... I mean, I, I, you know, in terms of from a, an, an artist or an actor's point of view, if they walk on the set, you'd say good morning and leave it at that. If they want to talk, that's their business. But yeah. because, you know, they want to probably get into it and some will and some won't. I mean, Absolutely. I'm always amazed at some people that go in and play totally out of character and then walk out and continue a conversation they were having with you, you know, and then, oh, sorry, back in again. Go yeah, back yeah, in. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and some people would want to talk and other people don't. Uh, or you're in, you know, you get into a car and you could be waiting for things to happen and a conversation strikes up. That could be something. But uh, most people, you know, I, I found are very, very pleasant, very easy to get on. It's usually young ones coming on the way up or the ones that can be a bit more difficult. That's It can be either you know. nervousness or it can be focus as well. And then as well, yeah. some, sometimes it's just arrogance, I think, you know. I, I think... I think actors are, are the creative side. They're used to dealing with all different types, so they need that little bit of breathing room for them to know. Okay, Grand, I, I can read them a little bit now. You know. I yeah, I, yeah. You know who was the best person I've ever worked with that for Post Inc. that I came across? Gene Wilder. I don't know if I'm with Gene and uh, called Quacks of Fortune has a cousin in the Bronx with Margot Kidder and Gene Wilder. It was in the Bronx. In Ireland, in uh, we shot it in Ireland, all, mostly all around Ireland. Yeah. What you want to know my name for? I just do. Waxer. What? Waxer. Waxer. That's it. That's it. Waxer what? Fortune. 
that an Irish name? Which? Waxer. No, no, that's what they call me. I used to make noises like a duck when I was a baby. He didn't, uh, he didn't concentrate too much when he was outside. He didn't put so much Irish into the accent when he was outside because he kept saying, right. oh, this is going to be revoiced, isn't it? Because, I mean, we were using dynamic mics at that point. We hadn't, you know, I think we had an 8.1 and we had a 4, the D25. Um, if we were using neck mics, have you seen the neck mics? I think I've got one here somewhere still, a BK. It was an RCA, I think, or Electro Voice, yeah, quite big. 8.1 as in the Sennheiser? The Sennheiser, yeah. We would have had the Sennheiser then because I'd done that. Uh, I think that was done in 70... It could be 72, 73. I'm sure that was done before. I don't think it was 69. That was the Sennheiser 816. A, a, it was probably the 80, 806 or 804 it would have been. Yeah, 804 or 805. There was two variations. That was that was still like the long, the long version, wasn't it? The very long one, yeah, yeah. yeah. I still yeah, have one okay. of those as well. <laughs> <laughs> you should start the museum. I don't know why. Good for whacking people with. Uh, but yeah, exactly. I suppose it's... Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there was areas that that worked exceptionally well. You, you'd be some, you know, if you were outside on location oh, yeah. in a wide shot in winter, mm. and it just, everything carried, if you, depending on where you were. And we hadn't got as much background then as we have nowadays. You know, some of my, you know, memorial scenes, I, I suppose, is, you know, uh, even swinging on a, on a, on a, on a, on a, a frosty morning and, you know, two people on horseback comes gliding through the forest yeah. and you can, the hooves are kicking up rocks and they're just bouncing on and then they get onto the frosty and then they pause behind you. There's the breath from the horse and you're trying to get, you know, you need a bit of height because I'd be on a ladder. I did try working on stilts. I actually done part of it for them on stilts. Did you learn it and did it work? I did it, yeah, I did. I mean, I, I was lucky. We, the carpentry department helped me a lot. I mean, nowadays it would be fantastic because if you looked at the, you know, the, the plasters, um, stilts are brilliant. But um, yeah. uh, mine were, you know, the old style where they, you'd strap you to it and somebody was standing behind you catch it just in case you fell because you were outside, especially if I had to move. But I tried a few times to do it. If I, It depended on the horse. It depended on the... The, the 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 can I say the horsey people because completely yeah. we I mean you know what it's like working around Completely. animals you just had to be so yeah, careful yeah you have to and, be aware you know, yeah. um, if you're doing an all sort of period film and like an adventure film there's always horses around so we've got to learn how to you to work around those with them and everything is a slow move yeah you can't move fast but I found the stilts gave me an extra bit of height so so would you walk around would you walk around with the pole out on the stilts as well. Yeah, that's that's yeah, a balancing yeah, act, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. But then, if you think, if you think of, if I could explain, uh, certainly boom swinging with a fish pole or a pole or whatever you want to call yeah. it, um, boom pole or fish pole, it's Alexander method. The Alexander method because you're stretched, okay, mm -hmm. and you're standing up straight. Uh, your balance, your two feet are separated. There's, you might have more weight on slightly on one mm -hmm. foot, but you can shift your weight. So that's number one. And number two is the Tai Chi. So you never grip the pole. The more you grip it, the, the, the heavier it becomes. You want to drop it. And also you create noise on the pole. So it's easier to keep it light and balanced in your hands. Yeah. Let the weight, you know, your front hand always takes the weight of it. Uh, and you shift like Tai Chi. 
So you've got to be able to shift not only with your, your arms, you've also got to be able to shift with your feet as well. So by right, if you're in a tight area, uh, you'd be surprised the distance you can get out without moving. Right, yeah, yeah. So if you just spread your feet and your hands and take the pole close to the end, you can push out very, very far and you can actually come back about five feet, if not more. It, it really depends on, on um, the scene and it depends on, um, I mean, sometimes you're in a tight spot, you need to be able to do that. But then um, you're also, I mean, a, a lot of the time in those days, it's, again, it's, it's changed a lot. We did play perspective sound as well. So you learned then just... If I walk onto a set, if you and again, this is why I say the block through because um, you could be looking at five or six people with dialogue. Uh, you've got to be able to cover all those. You're looking at who's closer to camera, mm. who's got more presence in camera, because you know the way somebody can be closer to camera, but someone's facing camera a little bit further down, but they actually look stronger in the lens. Yeah. Um, and then just try to balance those out. And uh, you're always saying that to people that are starting off, don't start by going too tight because you'll, you'll never hit that spot every time. No. And you might have to come back to that person five times. And the fifth time you've just got loose because it wasn't quick. You were too slow. So you just keep at a nice pace and work it out with your recordist um, and try and get a night. You, you can't always work it out with your recordist no. because sometimes the recordist... No, you can't. <laughs> and, and like that is... It's, it's a really nice thing to hear because I prefer that little bit of air. I prefer the space, like the, the aura of where they are. I don't want it up on their face yeah. all the time. And you're, what you just said, what you just said kind of solidifies that in a way, like if you're always used to that closeness and you do have a take where you're just that little bit off, but it's still acceptable, you'll notice it. Where if you're just giving it that kind of you know, feel of exactly. the whole area. It, it's, it, it, it's a scene, like it, the scene it, works. It worked. Yeah. I lectured as time went on. I, I used to always have students out with me and I would offer them to other departments that, you know, students are interested in camera students are interested in art department and so on and so forth. So I have one, one of the lads are out with me one day and uh, in fact, this guy and a girl and uh, we're watching, we're doing a scene. Uh, it was here in Ireland and... Um, there, it was a death there's somebody lying in a bed, okay, mm -hmm. looking straight up, and somebody's leant over them, talking to them. Right, yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't come in on the side. No. Okay. I'd love to be able to pop in on the side, then you could match it, you know, get an even match. Yeah. Uh, if you come over the top, it's too strong. Yeah. The person in the bed is too strong. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and if you come on their knees, you lose the person in the bed. Yeah. So um, we've done the first take, and... Um, I was asked, uh, you couldn't get a bit more, could you? It just sounds unbalanced slightly. Now, I'd hate wearing headphones, so I never had headphones. I always, I feel it more so because it was so many years I hadn't got headphones. Uh, and I had a very, very bad experience the first time I wore headphones. So, <laughs> What I did was, um, I said, no, I'll, I'll, I'll improve that, don't worry. It'll, I'll sort that out, I'm aware of what the problem is. So I, I done something, and the... I said, we finished the take, right? How was that? Oh, that was brilliant. That just worked. That's just exactly what I wanted. Great. Okay, wrap it up and do it. And the trainee was looking at me and said, uh, you, you were totally off mic on the guy in the bed. I said, I know. I said, purposely, because it worked. 
it, you can't hear that change anymore. It, it balances it. I mean, he's slightly off on the bed, slightly off with the head down, and it matches. So, so sometimes as a boom swinger, you're better off your recorders doesn't see what you're doing. Oh, completely. That's like, how it a, works. A, a sound mixer would flip the lid, like, what's going on? But, like, um, yeah. you just went basically off on both, and it sounded natural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, you're, because you, one way or the other, one's going to be off. So why don't you make the person that's on slightly off yeah. and now you've got a balance? So, and you're also taking into consideration what the camera's seeing, who looks stronger in frame. So you give them a hint more and then hopefully that works because all you can do is get in there and do your best and then you're, you're fine-tuned by your recordist, whoever he or she may be. With images, you were saying it was the first time that you paired yourself with radio mics and, from, you know, going from radio mics and straight on to the boom. Did you see it as a tool or did you see it as like, oh, what's this shit? I think we saw it as a nightmare, <laughs> that's to be yeah. honest with you. But, um, I mean, the thing about, uh, I mean, the mics were quite large, but I think they were BK, were they, were they wouldn't have been Sony BKs, I think they were RCAs or um, Electro Voices, which were okay. quite big. Um, so you'd be hiding those. Because before that, if we ever had to use them, which we did in town, uh, you'd actually have them, the mic in underneath, which the mic itself, I mean, was probably about uh, two inches tall and probably, you know, you're looking at a half inch diameter, you know what I mean? <laughs> and you'd end up, you'd have it on someone and the cable kept straight down the, the trouser leg, out the bottom, you'd tape it to the ankles and then you have a big loop of cable behind them that they'd be dragging along with them, you know what I mean, in town and stuff like that, to try and get some sort of useful um, sound somewhere, you know what I mean? It's, um, but, you know, very rarely would you see it. And, and we had the opportunity of doing wild tracks. We got that every time. There was no big deal about that. We just did it. That's the thing. Would you... Uh, at that early stage, would you just put it out to try it and then always take a wild track as a safety? Or, like, were there times where you were like, oh, no, that's that's good, it's fine, you know? Oh, there was sometimes it was good, but sometimes you just said from a safety because it was normally in noisy areas that you're using it or they wanted to try something different on a crane. Mm. Uh, but we had noise and the crane doing, which we weren't sure direction it was going to go at sometimes but I don't mean it that way but you know what it was like and it was just a bit difficult it was hard to move the crane hard to move the track but the guys did it I mean but um, occasionally as I said we always had it out plus we had the boom as well yeah. as a cover uh, we recording on two machines two mono machines it's funny isn't it when you think or three in some cases when you got up to images then what were you on were you still on the the audio camera we actually we actually used the D twenty five indoors and we used the Sennheiser out. And then what what were you recording on to? Oh, we were recording on an Agra at that point, uh, Nagra three, which was uh, you know what I mean. They were a nice, they were a really interesting machine. It, it had two inputs, or you could run a mixer, a, a Kadelsky mixer. It was part of the Nagra fleet that you could buy a little three channel mixer. So it was just it was just one mono track. It, it was one mono track that you'd be mixing onto sometimes. You know what I mean. And now, we, I mean, we had two Niagara's. We'd always have two Niagara's with us because sometimes we'd drop something onto the second Niagara, which was, you know what I mean? So we're coming off images, and around the time of images, then you get up and you move to Australia. Is it around that time? Um, it would have been Zardos. Zardos speaks to you. 
uh, John Bowman them. Did you do that? <laughs> Sorry. Did you do Zardos? What? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Zardos speaks to you, his chosen ones. So Zardos was the last film, feature film I did. John Bowman. John uh, worked in Ardmore quite a bit in terms of he used to use Adobe Suite quite a lot. Right. Revoiced up, do effects and stuff. And um, he, he was very supportive of the film industry in Ireland. Before that was um, John Houston was very much supportive of, of the industry in Ireland. Uh, and he lived in Galway, had a place in Galway. Um, Bowman, of course, uh, they, they wanted to get rid of the studio in 75 and he was the main instigator to say keep over 51%, at least 55%. So it's still a studio. Okay. So uh, he was uh, great for that, and a lovely man to work for. Really, and I, I just found a really nice person to work for. And Zardos was was Sean Connery, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was the seventies, and it was a different time back then. Like Zardos was out there, wasn't it, for that time? Yeah, it's still oh, out there. Way out there, wasn't it? Yeah, it's still out there. Yeah, hmm. and it's 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 quite. It was it was interesting. A lot of back projection, a lot of you know really interesting stuff. You know what I mean? We spent you know doing anything kind of more challenging about it, for like from a boom ops point of view or from a sound no, point of view. No, really, no. The only thing that happened on that, I I can remember on on the first week. Um, I'm just trying to think of the camera person that did it. I just can't try racking my brain. He won an Oscar for a cabaret. And okay. uh, as a DOP, needless to say, I just can't think of his name. And he he was coming in to do it, and I couldn't believe it. I was so disappointed. I thought, this is the worst set I worked on for lighting in my you know in all my life. And I was struggling on the on the set. And the second day, or the third day, I can't remember. I decided there's only one way to get into this, and I'm going to have to work the top. It's the only way I can get around these lights. Even though I was asking the lads to help and they were, oh, we can only do that and we can only do this. Yeah. And I'm saying, gee, surely can you do a bit more than that? Like, help me out here. I'm really struggling. And um, I, I was, uh, you know, you, you put a bar to stand on basically across the top of the set and one slightly higher you can put your arms on, right? So you got with a pole and you can dig down into the set. And I'm setting myself up there while the guys are lighting because I'm trying to figure out where the next, my next shadow comes in. And he walked onto the set and he said, what are you doing up there? And I said, it's the only way I can get into these sets. He said, okay, that's it, that's it. He said, okay, guys, pull everything out. We'll start from scratch. Really? <laughs> he didn't say we start. He just said, pull everything out. And I went, what am I doing? <laughs> so um, he actually pulled everything out and he started to light from scratch again and gave me every avenue, every hole, every avenue to get in. That's amazing. It isn't fantastic. It? Like, I was just about to ask yeah. you, was it like a limitation of the sets or was it just the way that he was lighting? Like, was it an experience thing or whatever? It's, it's, I, I don't think he was, I don't know what it was. Maybe he was just still settling or something, but he, he yeah. wasn't, he hadn't noticed, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And even though I was asking, now I'd normally ask the gaffers and the gaffer would be, you know, chatting to the, to the DLP, unless the DLP, because sometimes the DLP was, you know, they were rigging. Yeah. And it was when they were rigging that I need to, you know, figure out some stuff that I knew, okay, that's coming in that way, that's going, oh, that's going to be. So, and I always seemed to be a little bit behind and I wasn't getting, I wasn't getting in where I should have been, I always felt. But, but I, I was really impressed with him. I really impressed. He, he was not the only one. I mean, I've worked with so many fantastic DOPs. Honestly, I, I, I just got to say that I was very, very lucky. Very lucky. I was, I, 
I was a kid when I started. They, 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 the Sparks Department took me on. They were the ones that protected me. Nobody could touch me. Nobody would be allowed yeah. to touch me. Yeah. And they just protected me. I, they taught me everything they knew. They taught me about A, B, C, D, E, and F, about Charlie Bars, little slivers, you know, you name it. I knew it. And they be, gave me all this information. Plus, we were into an area where most of the DOPs um, were English, had worked for BBC or that. They came from their drama department, so they were used to working with crews. So it yeah. was it, teamwork, teamwork and teamwork. So you just got used to this and you could talk the language. I lost one DOP. One DOP walked off the set and gave me the meter and told me how to light, told me I can light it. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> I haven't had that yet, but I've definitely had strange looks from DPs. From then on, from your last feature was Zardos in Ireland, and then what, what brought you to Australia? Like, was it a was it a job? Was it a life choice? Or uh, a guy called Joseph Strict, American director called Joseph Strict, was overshooting a film. Uh, I, I, I don't think it was Ulysses. I, it was something between Ulysses and something else. And um, when we finished. He, uh, he was editing and stuff like that. He came looking for me one day when I was in studio and he said, uh, hey, you got time for coffee? And we went for a coffee. He said, I, I believe you're going to Australia. I said, hopefully I am. He said, did you ever think of lecturing? I said, no. He said, there's a film school started in Australia and they started in 75. I'd done an interim year and the interim year was 73. And he said, I'd done an interim year there and I think you would fit into that really well. I think it'd be really good for you. So he said, I'm putting your name forward. So... I've got a letter still from Professor Turplett saying our mutual friend Joseph Street, please see us when you come over. So then off doing a feature in Ireland that was kind of having a bad time from the sound department, they ended up relying on your point of view in relation to the sound. And then it was the director from that that... Put me forward for lecturing in Australia. I, I must admit, I enjoyed working with Australian crews. I, I really did. I, I just found if I was to pick a crew... Uh, first off, I'm not saying any other crews were really that bad. I mean, it'd be Australia first, Irish second. I just thought there was more. They fo forced, they pushed people to be a team members. I remember sitting out, I was recording at this time, and I was sitting out and I noticed in the, um, I could hear the Jenny pop up in between the takes. And I thought, well, geez, are they haven't, now the gaffers over there own their own gear. So I went to the gaffer, I can't remember, Peter or whatever, and I said, Peter, are you having a problem with your machine? He said, the thing's overheating. I said, if you could put it on an extra length as soon as you get a chance, because I'm hardly hearing it even when your door's open. Oh, if I get that extra length, I reckon I could save it. So you could leave the door open. He said, are you serious? Never, ever, never had a problem, any other film, anything at all. Doesn't matter. In lighting problems. It's those little contributions in cooperation that just makes the job enjoyable for everybody and make everybody want to work together and get the job done. So were you getting sucked into recording here as well? They were crying out for people. I mean, I, what can I say? I, I, I just, I, it didn't seem to, I didn't seem to be able to get back to swinging, you know, yeah. you'd... Because I'd done some nice jobs. I got some, you know, I was just lucky. I uh, just got some nice breaks. I had some nice crews to work for. I I worked in Sydney at one point on a period piece. I asked them, could they build a, when we go for the close-ups, can we move to the street down the way where it's a lot quieter and there's no buses and anything like that? And, and they moved the set and just gave me the fronts, you know, where we were doing close-up yeah. shots. So we do the wide shots in the noise area and then pop down there and do it all. So, I, and, you know, the... 
we managed to save the film that way and that of course anybody thought you know oh listen we'll get you to do a period film you saved that when you say but I had the whole crew helped exactly. me it wasn't it's, me it's I, the collaboration the support it's for the, the collaboration yeah. yeah exactly one question I have for you or one observation that I have maybe is did you stop being a sound recordist and go back to boom because nobody was doing it the way you wanted it done no, I'll be honest with you, I always wanted to go back to Boom. It was always a hankering to go back. I didn't really, I, look, I'll be honest, I found it, I found it, I think it's quite difficult to record. I think it's quite difficult and it was getting harder and harder and you're fighting more and more to try and get, you know, you're sitting there sometimes thinking, uh, you know, we're trying to give you a good job here, right? Mm. Uh, we're trying to give you a good end result. And you're just abusing the shit out of me. I mean, what, what's going on? You know, it's, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. We can all, I'm sure we've all experienced We've that. all been And there, you think, yeah. I, I, could, I could just sit here and, not, and just let it all happen. You know what I mean? And you'd sit there and say, fine. Uh, and then when you go in and, and watch the, when you finally go in to start editing, you think, what type of fucking sound recorders have we got there? What's going on? You know what I mean? That's just when you think about it. Why do you think, I used to record stuff on tape when I went and spoke to directors sometimes. I'd just keep the machine rolling. It'd be Gary or Victor, can you just follow me over to the director? Just keep it rolling. Right. And I'd be talking and I'd keep that for the editor. I'd mark it down. Editor, please listen to this if there's any shit along the line. So I came back a couple of times, tried to come back and say, I didn't like where you put there. And I said, I'm fucking dead. So, yeah, you know what I mean? All those things you'd love to do. but uh, And I did. And we were always, I was always used to writing notes. So we always had to keep notes anyhow. So I learned that very early on. I used to be big on notes. and I, Well, I used to, I used to be big on notes. Now I'm not. It's just like, okay, plane, car, you know, one word kind of things. But, um... And if there's nothing there, it's generally fine. But my notes, I've written all kinds of stuff in notes. Like, you know, if you're having a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> but you shouldn't have to do that, I always felt. I mean, I know they're under pressure. I understand that. Look, you're the same, I'm sure. You, you, you'd help them to the nth degree. You'd do exactly the same as I would. Yeah, you can see they're struggling, they're going through a hard time. You'd sometimes put yourself right on the line with it. Well, we could just about get away with that. And I'll do a wild track on that lad. We could, we've got it. Well, but I, you're going to have to build a little bit on it. Over the years, you know, when you start off as a sound mixer, from my perspective, like, you're very protective and you're very diligent about your job. Like, we have to be diligent. That's, that is part of the big, big part yeah. of the job. Um, but then I'm learning over the years that it's about helping production, you know, make the day. It's about helping the AD, like, do you really need that wild track? Or it's about helping the director to advise them in the right way. And it, it's all those interactions. And it's it's the interactions that pe people come back to you and go, oh, no, you're the only one for, for my feature and stuff like that. But it's not about getting great sound all the time. It's about making that situation work at that time. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, And yeah. I think... I agree, yeah, yeah. You have to sometimes let it go when it's fine. It's fine. It could be a little bit better, but it's fine. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you, you come to that, the, the, that stage of... Um, and I think even it's like working as teams, if you work over a period of time, you get to know one another as sound records and boom swinger. And for me... Um, 
the reason a lot of people say, why don't I wear headphones? I, I was never used to wearing headphones when I swung. I got used to looking at it visually where the mic should be. And I can feel it better, I think, when I don't have, you know, it's okay, different if you're doing a duckle, but you're responsible. But I can feel it. You can fine tune. Anyhow, the recorders can fine tune. Um, but the thing that you hear, you can't hear if you've got headphones on. You don't hear the changes. You couldn't hear what a director he or she are saying to the artist. You couldn't see an artist's suggestion. Can I stand earlier? Can I sit earlier? You know, you miss all those. You miss, you know, somebody making noise on the right-hand side or the left-hand side. Who's making that noise? Who, where did that come from? You know, you're looking around. Whereas if you know headphones, you've got it immediately. You can hear who's speaking. Um, you can hear something being said from the camera point of view. Are you changing lens, guys? Yeah. Yeah, sorry, no, we're going to a 25. Oh, thanks, because we're going to be looser on this. If you have the headphones on, you miss all of that sort of trash. And I think it's really important that you need it. As a boom swinger, I think you, you, you should be, if you're going to be out there, you should be hearing all that. And you should be able to relate back. As the boom, as the boom swinger, like it, for me as a sale mixer, it's the most important person for me to to get on the team. You're the representative of the sound department on that floor. Like when I... When I work, decide to work with a boom up, I always say that's your floor. Like, don't you just tell me what you want to do, and then we work as a sound team to get it. You know, from like there yeah, are from there from, are times yeah. where I'll go, no, I, I just need you to do this this time, please. Sorry, just do it. You, you know, there's those moments, but the boom up is is my representative on the floor, and it, it's very important that they're a person that can that can read everybody on the floor. You know what I mean? Not only not yeah, only for yeah, those people, I, I think, but for getting what we need as well. Yeah, I think it, I think it's important for, as you said, that you've got you've got to be able to, to communicate. If you're wearing headphones, you're isolated from the floor mm. in a mm. way. You know, nowadays everybody seems to be wearing everybody headphones, or everybody's isolated headphones. from everybody else. But before, you weren't isolated. You you know the focus puller. They, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, and and also you get to know, like even on the sets. I could have soft shadows. I know where most of my shadows are, where they'd be. You know, if you go back and watch a film, oh, the shadow on the far wall, like you watch it move. You actually watch there and watch as the artist moves, the shadow will move. Yeah. But it's not his shadow, it's my shadow. Yeah. So you, you learn how to do all that. Or else what you're talking about, if you, if you have something soft there, once you're on the move with the actor, it's a focus is on the actor. Exactly. The artist get up, starts to move, and then you're moving. So it looks... It, you, 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 nobody will even see it, I guarantee, exactly. in a million years. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Unless you've got somebody really sharp at the back thinking, that doesn't look like his shadow. But they're going to be watching. So, it, you know, they're not obvious. None of these shadows are obvious. And I, I guarantee you, every film, there's a hundred of them. Oh, yeah. Every film, there's, you know, you're kind of, you're, you know, you try and get your re recorders to sit behind you. Yeah. Not to one side. Because that becomes a conflict. Because he sees or she sees the mic from a different angle than you do. So it can be sometimes, oh, you, you're too far over, you're too far this way. And you're thinking, oh, hang on, could someone hold the pole in that position? I'm sorry, I haven't got a fish pole, a pole you could leave. But sometimes you want them to sit on one yeah. side. Because sometimes it's it's just a difficult move where you're trying to get around a corner somewhere. It's a blind corner. And you just need a recordist on that side to say, <laughs> where are you going? You're heading for the coffee pot. I need you to head for the kettle. That's I like to be very active on set like I get up I talk to everybody and I walk around and I interact very much so but when we're rolling I'm quite happy to kind of sit in a corner like when I look at the boom up that's when I'm like oh 
you know, that's, uh, that's wrong. That looks wrong. Or, you know what I mean? It's important that I don't need to know that. You know what I mean? Once it sounds okay to me in my yeah, ear, yeah. I'm happy. You're so right. And, and, and that, and sometimes, I mean, I'm not saying that, you, you know, as a boom swing, you're always right in the right position. Sometimes you are a bit shy, some slower, a bit short, but it can sometimes lead to, you know, horrendous arguments. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you, the, the interesting thing about the arguments are you're both en- arguing for an end, a better end result. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for years I used to work, I used to work out of a bag and without a monitor. And um, people are very stuck to the monitor, like... Once I got a once I got a, a glimpse at, at the frame, I'd be able to go back to the bag and sit there and go, yeah, that's fine. You know what I mean? And I just got you can oh yeah, I got but used see, to that. That's judging the space for what from what I yeah. seen. You know what I mean? Okay, here's one that I definitely want to ask you about. That's what you always said to me: is take it easy. What do you take me for? Take it easy. That's what he does. He takes it easy. You want me to end up like him? Do you? He's a peasant, a buffer. He's a punk. But I'm a king. And a king needs a queen. You people, you haven't a clue. No idea, none. Richard Harris. That's what, that's where I thought it was. Yeah, I listen. Unbelievable. On, like even even that scene alone, you know. For is that the one of the in the pub where he smashes all the glasses? Like I didn't put the glasses in because it, it's such a trashy scene. But then you know, like first of all, I was like, okay, I want to talk to him about Richard Harris. But then second of all, even in that clip. The dynamic, or where he's going, or like where where he's going to ad lib or do anything. Oh. Like, how, how did you get on with him in in relation to to work? Great, yeah. great, ah, unbelievable. I mean, look, it's 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 again that old style actor that you know has been around. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he can. Um, everything was so easy to follow. You knew you knew where he was. You know the way you just get a sense. Yeah, yeah. He's not erratic. Yeah. He's erratic, but he's not erratic. He's still controlled erratic, if that makes sense. So you know where he's heading. Is it like the theatrical kind of training in him or something like that, where you you yeah, know it's all going to be projected and you know it's all going to make sense? And it's going to go there and it's going to go there. He's not he, he he's not doing these whips, yeah. you know, where, where, where he's lying on the ground and screaming with his head buried <laughs> in the floor and then coming up and going, screaming. Or, you yeah. know what I mean? Or You know, he, he, everything is controlled. Everything is, is there. There's space around it. You can get around yeah. it. Yeah. You, you can get everything that's happening. You're not, you're still hanging around the same area, roughly, mic-wise, yeah. you know what I mean? You're giving him a bit of air. You've always had to, so it was lovely. That's it. Like, there's so much um, volume in him as well. The, like, he projects. Like, he's... He's up there. When we came in to do that scene, our director's got a cold. He's not feeling the best. He's locked in a caravan, basically. The top door of the caravan would open, action, and then he'd close it, right? So now he's out in the caravan. We're in doing that pub scene, right? And we rehearsed it. And you can imagine that the take was not anything like the rehearsal. Mm. (laughs) It was around the same areas. We moved the same areas. Um, what a performance. Oh, yeah. And you know, on any set, I think, when the crew gets that performance, everybody per- perks up. Everybody's on the ball. There's that you focus, I mean? and it's, it's like some, everybody is rewarded by 
something ha- like that that scene is working you know yeah it's magic yeah. it's actually magic yeah. it's it's just <clears throat> and uh we finished and the door opened uh let's do a second one and no that was all let's yeah. do a second no no one. no we're going for and beers it's done <laughs> harris <laughs> harris said what would you like? Whatever you want. And just clammed the door and went out. No reaction to what went on. And everybody was just amazed. And Harris just went, what the? <laughs> How can someone not appreciate what they just got? Exactly. I mean, you couldn't have asked for better. You could not have Or even just better. acknowledge and it. You know what I mean? Just come in and go. Exactly. Just say, oh, fantastic. Brilliant. Mm. Listen, I just, I do one for insurance and we'll just, whatever you want to do. If the crew can feel that, you know, that tension of wanting to get it or whatever, you think that the director's going to be like. Yeah. Astounded. You, you know? can feel every, everybody on the crew because yeah. there, there was movement in it there was try you, you know everybody's on the ball everybody's nobody wants that you know not nobody's not necessarily thinking of not making a mistake but everybody's i just can't say how on you know when you're into that situation mm. you're sitting there you're right on that edge mm. and we're just working yeah just a pleasure such a pleasure to work with such a pleasure i think maybe that's with. like um, it's part of the magic isn't it like even i like when I was a trainee and I went out on my first job and you're getting towards the end of the day and everybody's just, you know, working over each other and sliding in between each other and it's like boom, 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 boom. And then, okay, action. And then it's done. And it's just, it's, it's, it's that, that's the magic. Even if it's a simple thing, it's the magic that like, is like, oh, I want to, I want to do this. I want to work at this forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I want to work it. This is my area. That's why, you know, I, I think I love features because I did have the opportunities of working with um, Peter O'Toole, Catherine Hepburn. I mean, O'Toole was just unbelievable. I, I mean, just yeah. unbelievable. I mean, he was, he'd walk onto the set, be drinking like a flat, take a deep breath and go through reams of pages of dialogue on Country Dance or Line and Winter. My lord, my ladies. And was it always, was it always, um, was it always learned? Like, what were the lines learned from the script like they were perfect oh just off the bat off the bat i mean some people were saying uh, later on in life was a bit more difficult but i didn't find it because then even on um tutors yeah tutors he came in to play the bishop didn't he or the king or something we came in to play i'm not too sure a role yeah and uh, i think it was the bishop or king anyhow and we um I think it was he because he was getting elderly. He was only allowed to stay on the set for short, and then he had the twenty-minute break. So okay. the, the likes of myself was called in because I'd worked on on a couple of films, and then um, the camera person, the same thing. Um, he'd rehearse. He first of all, he'd acknowledge everyone on the crew. Good morning, good morning, everyone. Good morning, a nice morning, and I'd sit down, mm. be pleasant, everyone. Okay, so. Um, Okay, rehearse, uh, do his block through, rehearse, where we'd have the block through already, then we would just rehearse, and then he'd, um, the director would come up and say, uh, listen, Peter, it's time for your 20-minute break. Oh, I, I say, hey, are you fellows happy to go on? Are you? And he'd ask his fellow actors, and they'd say, yeah. And he'd say, no. And then he'd ask us, the crew, are you, and they'd be more or less, <laughs> but he said, are you guys happy as well? Yeah, we're happy. We're here till the day, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, let's let's go. Yeah. So we went, we'd go again. And then, you know, we'd, we'd do that 
seeing we're changing shots again. And then what happened is, uh, do you want your 20 minute break? No, I'm, I'm fine. Is everyone okay? Can we, will we go on? We'll go on. Mm. And this is what was going on. So his 20 minute breaks weren't coming as, as often as he wanted. And this went on for the week or close enough to the week. And it was just fantastic. It just, you know, a lovely person, really nice, uh, what I remembered. But he was enjoying himself. We changed directors. <laughs> Oh, what? he was enjoying himself. Like he, we that, changed. That's his his addiction. He, yeah, he was he was loving it. Yeah, yeah, it was his baby. You know, he was just you know, and and definitely a professional. There's no doubt. You know, people say about actors playing up and doing all of that. And, you know, most of them don't. It's only sometimes they're forced to play up. But then we got into you know, let's just the hard guns. Let's just shoot the shit out of this and keep moving. You know what I mean? Mm. And uh, what do you mean? What twenty minute break? <laughs> that's it. And um, he just said, I've got to have my 20-minute break. And uh, uh, I was, oh, we can't have 21. You're just kidding us, you know, we're going to lose, blah, blah, blah. And, it's the attitude. Um, it's the attitude he, we're talking he, about. Like, yeah, so his, the attitude, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the walk was slow and the walk coming back. But it progressively got slower and slower and slower. The more the misbehaving, the more the walk got slower, even off the chair. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Somebody give me a hand to get up off yeah. the chair. Just said, I, well, if you want to play games, we'll play games, baby. And that's the way it went. And that's, you see that sometimes. And sometimes, you know, we've seen that before. A couple of times you'd see that. And you think, I can understand why you do it, you know. I would plead with every person here. Make me a scapegoat, if you will. Call me a traitor, if you will. Please, let's save the country. The alternative to this treaty is a war which nobody in this gathering can even contemplate. If the price of freedom, the price of peace, is the blackening of my name, I will gladly pay it. Thank you. Michael Collins. Right, yeah. So, Love it. Um, huge cast, written and directed by Neil Jordan, wasn't it? Yeah. Neil Jordan bringing The Company of Wolves, The Crying Game, The Butcher Boy, Interview with a Vampire, lots of stuff. Liam Nielsen, Julia, Julia Roberts, Aidan Quinn, Alan Rickman as De Valera. He was very good, actually, as De Valera. Stephen Ray, Brendan Gleeson. Was this your first... Was this your first feature coming back to Ireland or were you straight into this kind of thing? Or No, no, I was, I, I, well, what happened is then I do fine, documentaries are going fine, I'm happy, everything's working well and I got a call and this is how it went. Listen, you've been back here for about two fucking months, three, we're all trying to figure out, are you going to compete with us or what are you doing? And I thought, uh, what's this? Are you going to record and compete with us? He said, because I heard you were a really good boom swing. Are you interested in swinging something? I've got something coming up I'd love you to work on. I thought, uh, no, not really. I'm doing docos. <laughs> he said, well, would you meet up for a coffee? So we <laughs> met up for a coffee and uh, decided to do it. And uh, I didn't know what hit me. He probably didn't know what hit him either. And uh, we probably fought like cats and dogs for the first two weeks, I think. And then uh, I decided that was it. I was packing it in. And uh, I wasn't going to do any more. I said I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to swing. I didn't want, you know, I just want to go back to documentaries. And um, 
we decided we'll settle our difference and we'll see the film out and we'll go from there. But we actually went on and we worked, I think, for I don't know how many years then together. <laughs> so this is this is quite important. You're talking about Kieran Horgan, Kiwi. Yeah, we had a we had a we had a we had a, a really interesting relationship, if you like. I mean, we 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 both fought very hard to get the best we could. But we fought with each other at times as well. So, so Michael Collins then was was your was your first feature with Kieran. Uh, listen, there was like stacks of stuff before Collins. Right, up pop Collins. Right, um, I really enjoyed working with Neil Jordan. Uh, I, I there was something about it. I just loved his presence on the set. I loved the way he directs. I loved. Uh, I just loved the way he's. he's um, He's an actor's director, I always feel. Right. Really interesting. Uh, can't stand bullshit and won't put up with bullshit on the set, which I think is great. I mean, that's fine by me. I don't have a problem with that. That's not... Um, and the actors we had were just great. Look, I mean... Geez, it's a huge just, cast. Just the voices. Yeah. Oh, and brilliant. Um, them all. Every one of them. Uh, Aiden was the biggest um, ad liver of all, and he used to... <laughs> I, the first time he caught me a couple of times and I said, Aiden, you're killing me, you're killing me. Yeah. And he said, um, I'll tell you what, just, just, uh, if you're in my area. <laughs> if you're hanging out here. Just stop a moment, stop a moment, right? I'll have and something I'd to ha say. Okay, I'll just give you a quick flick on my, on the, the front thumb, right? I just have to do that. So you have to watch out of the corner of your eye and I'll stay there for as long as I can, but I'm going to have to go. I can't wait, you know, because there's another line over here. So he'd go, OK, and uh, he'd give me a quick thumbs up. I'm going to say a line. He'd throw it on that lip, but he, he worked with me every time. Yeah. If I was in his area, I'd glide around his area. He'd say the line, I'm gone. Yeah. And um, uh, uh, Liam Neeson, they, they were, listen, uh, they were all, I just... I can't explain. It was just, I think uh, there was a whole thing that came together on that. Um, can I give you a little bit of um, one of the days where we had, um, oh, you mentioned his name now. He's actually died, which is a shame. What, Blake Debelier. Um, uh, really Alan good, Rickman. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah. Alan Rickman, because I worked with Alan a couple of times. Really good. I love his type of performance. I love the style he has. And great for Colin, for uh, Devil Era. Played it really well. Yeah. And yeah. he's doing one of his speeches in um, at the country. He's standing up with the bog outside, you know what I mean? And one of these elderly guys, extras, is cheering and screaming and shouting. <laughs> <laughs> he's been overly enthusiastic. Can we ad-lib, ad-lib, please? Can we just have ad-libs quiet, just muted quiet? And the guys were asking him, and I then found out who it was. So he, next take, he he's not as bad. And, I, you know, then the third take, they go to him again. Somebody different comes in. The first comes in. He still goes. So I, eventually, I said, hang on for a minute. <laughs> I go over and talk to this guy. I said, listen, can you do me a favor, please? I said, if every time you speak, we lose what he's saying, and it's really important. He said, I know it's really important. I waited for years to do this. <laughs> To cheer him on. That's basically, and I said, could you please just give us one? And, and once we get that, then you can do what you like. We had to move him out. We, we, he did. He gave me one. And then we, that was it. Once I went over and paced him. To really? I, I, I know the scene you're talking yeah. about. It's a powerful scene. Oh, it, it really is. I mean, I, 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 look, they all played powerful scenes. I mean, it was just, 
it was such a it was so nice to work on we did a we did a we were using 82 so it's um the you know the long mic so um we were doing a scene do you remember the uh what was it called the 12 apostles as they called it do you remember the 12 you're going to send out those and we shot that in the theater on the stage and we had a 20 by 20 just above their heads but we were pouring light down through it, right, oh, and yeah. softened it down. So um, I was probably a half inch from the top, the the um, th- that screen itself, that twenty by twenty. I was working about a half inch. In fact, I was trying to make the you know the table smaller so I could have a little bit more room. And I'm right on Mike's edge, and we wander around that whole twelve. Was hand he had it handheld, right? And um, uh, they. Um, when we finished, the whole crew applauded. I remember thinking, "How did you do it?" I don't, neither of us, you know, both of us were just, just. But I think it's when you get a crew like that that's really into yeah. it. You know what I mean? Yeah. When everybody's and committed. as Chris said, if you want me to hire it up, I will. But it, no, when everybody's committed just, and when it works better, yeah, and when they're open to working with each other, it just it creates that bit of magic that yeah that we all do this, this job again. For. It's and it was magic. I mm. yeah. One more for you. All over now, ladies. Francie Brady, back in action. You know what it is, Francie? I think you're getting big. He is indeed. Him with the big chop and all. Francie Brady, the butcher boy. Ah, Francie, you're a ticket. <laughs> what kind of ticket would that be now, ladies, huh? A bus ticket, maybe, yeah? Yeah? Maybe a train ticket. Or a one-way ticket, am I? Is that what I am? I had you there, ladies, hadn't I? Oh, I took it. Did you get it? Yes, I took it. Well, there's one pig that's come to the end of the road, anyway. It, 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 you know that was his first film? That boy? Yeah. His name is Eamon he, Owens. He was fantastic. He was a great kid, lovely feet on the ground all the way through that. Just yeah. amazing, you know what I mean? And a lot of effort. And his brother, his brother was in, involved in it as well. Um, but a lovely, a really lovely kid, a really nice kid, just really nice uh, personality and really made it. I mean, he wasn't the only, I mean, there was quite a lot of good actors around that as well. Uh, and especially with Neil, there's a scene in that where Rosie Lenehan, uh, is playing the piano and they're singing, right? Mm. And we we loved it. We both came in myself thought, this is great, we should we'll just do this live and kill the playback. And of course when Neil found out that we dropped the playback, he just lost it, right? And said, No, oh. I want the playback, I don't want you know this and we thought, Oh no, we wanted that too. So what we did was we fed it to his headphones. <laughs> we still recorded it live, we didn't have it going to the floor at all. We thought really? the catches us were dead. That's it. Oh yeah. We were so Oh, that it worked for us, and as far as I know, they used it. So it's it's. It, I mean, he couldn't even put in the playback afterwards. But it was look. They were fantastic. They were just great. It was it was just part of that film, wasn't it? It was just yeah. And there was. I remember um, the other thing about. I mean, that's where it, it, another thing about Neil. There's no big deal, you know. There's no hassle. We don't. Um, we done a shot of them running around the. I don't know if you watched it. The whole thing of running around the bedroom. Be, he's been chased and he's been running around all the bed, jumping on the beds, right? And I'm yeah. doing the same thing. Once we get away from the wide shot and we move into a bit tighter, I'm running around the beds as well. 
And so um, at this time, it's a radio on the end of it because you can't afford to have a cable. But um, we changed lenses and uh, we went for we We said, oh, we're just going a little tighter. And we said, let's go again. And suddenly Mike goes, uh, sorry, can we cut? And sorry, no, you're in. I mean, I said, how much am I in? But he said, your whole body. And I said, I thought we just went tighter. <laughs> and he said, yeah, so did I. <laughs> and Neil said, I thought we went tighter as well. What's going yeah. on? So it was just that. So let's have a look at it. Oh, yeah, Jesus, what are we doing? Let's, we're, we're losing it, guys. Let's put in a tighter lens, can we? That was it. So it In was, around that point, you just, you just mentioned there that you had a radio on the end of the boom. In relation to where you were, say, late 70s, early 80s, and then we're going into the 90s now. I don't know where the butcher boy is. It's mid-90s. So then... Did you find that the equipment or the gear was changing much? Not really. The mics, well, I, of course, I'm using the 82s, uh, you know, again, so I'm not using uh, for one. Okay, we liked the 82s and they were his preference. And um, The 82 is the Neumann Again, 82. didn't particularly like 80, yeah, the Neumann. And it's still, you know, the 82 being the longer one, the 81 being the shorter one, in reverse from the... the but the, the only difference was that you could afford if... To do things like that, because if you were going to do running shots, and we don't, I don't, I don't know how many running shots I've done, um, holding a boom, you know, you're with dialogue, uh, you really need to have a, a radio, unless, especially if you're you're going to do three sixties, you know, you're spinning and stuff like that, because you, you know, when the old days when you had cables, you had to actually lay out your cable so you could unwind the cable and then wind mm. it again. So who's ever tracking your cable is, you know, got to be aware of where it's mm. lying because you can't afford to think of it. So um, it was lovely to have the ra- the only downside of the radios, um, which I think we all experienced at the beginning of all those, where you know, um, that if you get too much level, the, the radio really can't handle it as well as going directly it into the machine, it, and yeah. that's, you know, I. Uh, um, so there was areas where, you know what I mean, if it was a reason, like the bed stuff, definitely a radio because you're jumping on the beds because you've no choice with the jump because you can't, I can't pull out into the middle of it and run because I'm going to be in shots. So yeah, I've got to go, you've got to go over the yeah. beds. It gives you, it gave you a lot more flexibility, a lot more flexibility. I'm always amazed at how, uh, whether it be camera or sound or, you know, uh, anybody that's tracking or moving, um, how even when you run, you can actually weave in between and out between poles. I mean, I've done it with Steadicam, you know, one or two really good people with Steadicam. There's a lot of bad people with Steadicam who really shouldn't have a Steadicam. It's like giving them a six <laughs> <laughs> There's a few of them there. That's, yeah, because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not... You know, they'll get the shot on the move. It's when they stop is uh, my it's, problem it's, because they lean back. Yeah, yeah, it's know? when it's they like, stop. Yeah, over, over the it's bar bit. the shot you know, or else, you know, holding the frame. It's like every frame can be different with someone. Yeah. You, you, Steadicams would be fantastic and they're great. And I've worked with some brilliant Steadicam operators. Um, uh, Rain of Fire, I mean, the guy, he, he, um, it's similar build to myself, and you would think, well, he's not, geez, is he going to hold that steady cam? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I know it's changed in the way. And we were going upstairs, and there were like castle stairs, nearly <laughs> straight yeah. up, with dialogue into rooms, the opening sequence of that. Unbelievable. We've done it about five times. I thought, geez, he's going to die. Never died, mm. never wilted, it, just always on the ball. So I think it's like. People often say, "Well, why did you swing for so long?" And you're still, you'd still do it. I mean, I don't. Um, 
I, I, I always liked it. I loved doing it. There's, it never, it felt, okay, there's times when, of course, it was a strain, like oh, every job can be, you know, sometimes it is, it can be, you're just in a bad position, you can't get it, you know what I mean? You, um, but most times it's great. Okay, so that's a perfect place to end the conversation, but I actually have one more left. This is an interesting one I want to hear from you. I would have waited. Don't be saying that. 14 years, Maggie. I would have waited. You're only 16. Did you not trust me? How the hell could I trust you? I was mad in love with you. I wanted to keep it that way. Not have it eaten up day by day. So you made the decision for both of us? You made your own decisions too, Maggie. What do you mean? You married my best friend, for God's sake. Well, did you expect me to remain faithful to you? I suppose I did. I thought I was being romantic. You know, giving you your freedom or something. You were giving me my freedom, but you wanted me to stay faithful to you. I was only 19. The boxer. Where will I begin? <laughs> <laughs> I love... Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I mean... Fascinating, um, very tense on the set. Uh, fascinating because Daniel would would even speak to you in the, his role play. So he got in. He's a method actor, so he gets into it very, very quick. Uh, and as you're whether you're setting up something or you need to do something, and you have to talk to him, he talks to you in character. That's just what it is. You you just take that. Um, very dynamic, really interesting stuff. Um, everything has to be discussed. He has to be right in his head yeah. to do yeah. it. And I, I love his performances. Yeah. But sometimes, I mean, being on the set, it can be quite draining. <laughs> That's you know, I suppose. Yeah, you're you're kind of in it with him then because you're you're right there yeah. with him. So yeah. it's that can get very um, intimate at times, especially if you're working together for. A good few weeks. Yeah, yeah, for, a, for for quite some time on that. And you have a, Daniel was the type of, the other thing too, is that if he, he would work it out and you do your block through and then, you know, we'd all, we'd all watch it and we set it up, then we come back, we do a rehearsals, do a two rehearsals and then Jim, in his wisdom, might say, yeah, Daniel, could you, um, could you just have a, a slight glance to the right, it could be. And that's at least a half an hour discussion. Yeah. He has to feel right about that plan. So, so you know, and, uh, you know, every time he walked onto the set, it would just be get rid of the circus. Anybody that um, didn't need to be there, he doesn't want them there. That's it. And that's, I think that's fair enough. I don't have a, you know, there's never a problem. I, I sometimes put my hand up. Can I go? No, you can't stay. But it's... I can understand that totally. It's, you know what I mean? It's a work in progress. It's what he does to get what he needs out. So... And that's what we're we're all there to 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 do that project so. to to facilitate, yeah. And it's it's his baby in a way. I mean, it's his performance, and he 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 would never ever question if anybody's on the set. They're there for a reason. He never questions it. You know, sometimes I'd be a little bit concerned because sometimes I'm gonna have to be in straight in the eye down the eye lines. You know what I mean? Because there's nowhere I can go. Um, that's where I've been, and you're thinking. Uh, I wonder how he gonna how he reacts in this because some people can react completely, especially with a method actor. It can be tricky sometimes. Yeah, really. And then you know, if if you end up 
being told, well, you can't be there, you know. But no, he he was grand. He, in any of those situations, there was no worries. He was very aware. The only problem we had was that sometimes we felt they were competing. <laughs> it felt like that. I'm not, he wasn't. Between, between Emily and him? Yeah. Mm. Um, sometimes it was very, very low, and then it would go dynamic range. It was just fly and especially if you're sitting I, I always felt that you know sometimes you say can we will we use the 81s on this mm, i love the 82s can we just stick to the 82 and you think well we really i mean i've nowhere i haven't got very far to go you know what i mean i'm in a small room it's not jim would change things because jim would do things like you think well uh oh um what are you doing uh well i was just an extra sitting here ah yeah yeah uh, maybe what you need to be doing, <laughs> and suddenly you've got a whole scene with dialogue. So, and he'd put that in the middle. So it was quite interesting. Um, yeah. I enjoyed the film, and I mean, uh, Barry McGuigan, uh, who trained Daniel for the boxing, said he could he'd be ready to go in for a fight. Really, he put so much effort into it. Yeah, yeah. Because I suppose, I mean, if he puts that amount of effort into his performance, naturally he's going to, you can imagine he's going to do it. You're mentioning there that you're back with Kiwi at that point for this movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I bobbed in and out. We kept, you know, sometimes you tried to break the relationship and have a divorce, but it never really, we just had a tried separation. There was a long period where the two of you just worked together through the 90s. Oh yeah, we done, we done, we done the nineties. We done into the two thousand. We done, I mean, we done heaps of film. We done heaps of stuff. We got. I'd even go down. I think twice. I broke his um, receivers or you know transmitters for headphones. He'd be trying to get me to wear headphones. You know, I said the only reason that you'd want me to wear headphones is so you can keep asking me what's going on and telling me to get tighter. And even if I was inside the mouth, you'd want me to get down even further. So I said, I'm not wearing the headphones. And then you keep yakking to me. I can't do it. Can't do it. But I'll tell you the story, whether you want to use it or not. But it's a lovely story. So what happens is they're having a discussion. We're we're, we're setting up to do a rehearsal. We've already done the block through. We're setting up to do the rehearsal. And there's a discussion with the three of them going on on the balcony and we're not moving nobody's moving anywhere nobody knows what's going on but everybody's waiting to go because we can go at any minute right and meanwhile kiwi's up the stairs you know what's 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 happening what's going on i mean i said can you not go in there and i said kiwi hold it down they're rehearsing next door they're just going through the lines if I try putting a mic in there at the moment, they'll just blow. You can tell the tension is horrendous. Everybody's, we're all staying back. So just, I need to hear, I know you need to hear. I'll be there on the day. Just can you leave, trust me. So he, he, you know, I mean, I, I mean, it's only natural that this is what happens. I mean, I'm, I've done the same myself as a recorder. Can you not do? But um, so I said, just trust me and leave it. Yeah. You know, this is the, I said, Kiwi, okay, I'll tell you what, you take the pole, I'll go downstairs and I'll talk to you, then see what it's like. You know, walks down the stairs. And the next minute, Connor arrives up, my tra- trainee, and he goes, Kiwi said to wear these. And I said, and I threw them over the back. I'm not wearing those, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, and that was it. And we eventually, we seen started up and away we went. And, of course, we got in and we got what we wanted and everything worked and that was it. So now we're going for 11 o'clock break or whatever for a cup of coffee. And I said on the way, I said, oh, by the way, are you? 
<laughs> transmitter and receiver, <laughs> or transmitter and headphones. He said, what do you mean? <laughs> if we go the other side of the coin then, um, Robbie, Robert, uh, he was a Steadicam operator on that, and then he, he became a DOP. He said to me, um, he said he came over uh, after we had our copy, we were coming back, and he came over, he said, what was going on today? And I said, what do you mean, what's going on? <laughs> right? He said, Con uh, Kiwi, he said, I'm standing downstairs like most of us are all waiting, wondering what's going on up there. There's a big, we know there's a big chat going on, and it seems to be a lot of tension. So he said, next one I hear Kiwi saying, Connor, what's happening up there? And Connor, I don't know what's going on. He said, what's he up to? Has he got headphones up there? And he says, no, he hasn't. You know he doesn't wear. Yeah, Jesus. And Connor, it, Kiwi leaves in disgust and goes upstairs. And with that, in, he comes down and he's fuming. And he goes, Connor, Connor, where are you, Connor? And uh, Robbie says, I'm, I'm not doing anything. Can I help you? No, I need Connor. Where's Connor? Where's Connor? And Connor comes running. And he goes, Connor, Connor runs off upstairs. And he said, within two seconds, this thing lands down at my feet, <laughs> smashing smithereens. I was the same myself with, um, I had a boom up in Ireland, Alan Scully. And I worked with Alan on many things. And... We'd have a similar relationship, like everything. It wasn't an argument. It was just like we knew how to push each other's buttons. And but, but at the same yeah. time now, an awful lot of the time, I wouldn't have to think when he was around. Things were done and, you know, he, we just read each other very, very well. But like when it came to simple things, That's we could have a we could have a blow up argument where where crew and all would be like, "Are you okay?" And we're like, "No, no, no, this is normal." You know what I mean? Yeah. But um, no, invaluable, it, like like just like made the day easier, made the job easier, apart from the odd argument and stuff. So, what was it similar? Like, was it a similar kind of vibe? Oh, yeah, definitely. There, there was no doubt. And we were both striving for the end yeah. result because we were both driving each other. Exactly. That's where we have to wrap it up now. We could go on for weeks. <laughs> I just wanted to take a moment to say thanks, not only for myself, but for all the crews that have been lucky enough to have you on the set. A great educator, not only for sound, but a true gift for the film industry at large. <laughs> all the best. Great. I should just see a beam of light. But back here is belt straps, pulleys... Intermittents, sprockets, complex machinery. Spark between the carbons makes the light, and nothing happens without light. It is amazing, because it's just static frames with darkness in between. But there's a little flaw in your optic nerve. So that if I run the film at 24 frames per second, you don't see the darkness. It's called the Phi Phenomenon. Viewing static images rapidly in succession creates an illusion of motion. Given night, a film can play in Tokyo, West Berlin, London, New York, and the same audience is responding emotionally to the same things.
Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.